Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. We're opening our Bibles this morning to the 8th chapter of the Gospel of John, John chapter 8. John is writing a selective biography. It's a selective biography of the life of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. There are some things about which John chooses not to write. In fact, the last verse of the Gospel of John, John says there are many things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books. A selective biography. Some things he has selectively eliminated, and other things John has selectively included. There are seven signs or miracles in the Gospel of John that John weaves together in order for us to see the power of Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God. And there are seven statements, self-revelatory statements, that Jesus makes that are uniquely shared in the Gospel of John. They are often called the great I Am statements. We looked together at John 6 and verse 35 where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. This morning we're turning to John chapter 8 and we're seeing the second great I Am statement. It's found in John chapter 8 and verse 12. Jesus is going to say, I am the light of the world. I have five books in my personal library on great text of the Bible. When an author puts together a book under the heading great text of the Bible, they all come to varied conclusions. But I'm sure anyone who ever put together a compiled list of great text of the Bible would have to include John 8 and verse 12. Here we find a magnificent metaphor, a startling and significant statement. Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and that's a verse that everyone should have underlined. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. This morning, we're going to be looking at the theme, the light of the world is Jesus. Let's ask the Lord to bless His Word as we look into it today. Father, we thank You for the ministry of the morning. Thank You for songs that have stirred our hearts. Thank You for the joy of knowing that every knee indeed will bow to You. Today, Lord, as we bow before You on this day and we are reminded of those who waved the palm branches and cast down their garments to say, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now. Lord, we share that same burden of heart. Oh, God, save now. As we think of what's happening around this world, and specifically we pray together today for brothers and sisters in Christ whom we know, both in Russia as well as in Ukraine. But especially today, I pray for Pastor Pavlov. I pray for Brother Bruce Tuttle. I pray, Lord, for the churches in Ukraine and for the ministry ongoing there. Lord, spare them, and Lord, I pray that you'd allow us together as we pray and as we give to be a blessing to those who are going through such a difficult time. But especially now, Lord, I pray that you'd open our hearts to this wonderful theme that we consider together, what it means to know the one who alone is the light of the world 
And Lord, if there be someone here today who's never come to know that light, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Back in the 1740s, while studying at Oxford in England, English poet Gilbert West and his cousin, his cousin Lord George Littleton, together set out to disprove two of the Bible's great truths. They set out to disprove the resurrection, and they set out to disprove the conversion of the Apostle Paul. They gave themselves a full year. They were both unbelievers. Gilbert West focused his attention on the resurrection. In order to historically disprove the resurrection, he looked at everything he could look at, did a thorough study. Meantime, his cousin was looking at the conversion stories of the Apostle Paul and the ministry that the Word of God says the Apostle Paul had in the ancient days. At the end of the year, they came back together and they discovered that they were no longer unbelievers. Both of them had come to put their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, and Gilbert West published his findings under the title, Observations on the History and Evidences of the Resurrection of Jesus Christ, for which he was awarded an honorary doctor of laws at Oxford University. His cousin, George Littleton, sent letters to West, and West was able to publish Littleton's finding under the title, Observations on the Conversion and Apostleship of St. Paul. They were asking a really good question. They were asking along the way, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? People have wrestled with that question for 2,000 years. In fact, when you look back in John chapter 7, again and again, the Spirit of God wants us to know that during the time of Jesus, people were wrestling with the question, who is this man? Who is Jesus? You'll see it there in John chapter 7 and verse 12. We read, there was much murmuring among the people concerning him. For some said he's a good man, and others said, nay, but he deceiveth the people. And in John 7 and verse 26, the people asked, do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? And in John 7 and verse 31, and many of the people believed on him and said, when Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man doeth? And in John 7, verse 40, again, they're asking, who is Christ? In verse 40, many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said of a truth, this is the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. But some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the Scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? The disagreement about who Jesus was was brewing, and it was dividing friend from friend and family member from family member. So we read of that in John 7 and verse 43. So there was a division among the people because of him. People hold different opinions about Jesus, who he was, who he is, how we ought to respond to him. Jesus divides friends, families, colleagues, and nations. Who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? It was a question that was asked while Jesus was on earth. It's a question that's been asked over and again throughout the ages of history. It's a question that needs to be asked this morning.
by everyone who's come into this room. Who is Jesus? In John chapter 8, the text to which we turn this morning, Jesus self-identifies. He self-identifies with significant words, startling words. He stands forward and in John chapter 8 and verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. What an amazing claim. What a sensational statement. For just a moment, I want you to take a step back with me into the pages of history, if you will. We're going back to the year of our Lord, 29. That would be 29 AD. We know that what is happening here in John chapter 8 takes place in the month of October. We know that because John 7 verse 2 says, the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. What we're reading about in John chapter 8 takes place then some six months before Jesus is crucified. The extent of the end of his ministry is before him. He stands forward very publicly, very boldly in the temple to declare, I am the light of the world. The Jews gathered together in Jerusalem three times a year for three great feasts. There was in the spring the Feast of Passover, A few weeks later, there would be the Feast of Pentecost. But the most wonderful of the feasts, no doubt, would have been the Feast of Tabernacles. At the Feast of Tabernacles, it began on a Sunday. It would run for eight days, concluding on the following Sunday. Everyone would set up tents or booths. They would live in the tents. They would be reminded of how God had cared for the children of Israel as he led them from Egypt to the Promised Land. They would wave palm branches. They would provide shade for the priests who were ministering. They would celebrate the great harvest. And there were forms and functions of religion that were being accomplished at that time to remind them of the goodness of God, not only living in the tabernacles or the tents, to be reminded of how their forefathers had for 40 years lived in tents in the wilderness. But every day, one of the priests would carry a golden pitcher down to the pool of Siloam, The crowds would follow, they would carry the golden pitcher back, and they would pour out an oblation at the base of the altar as they rejoiced at how God had provided for them water from the rock in the wilderness. As they ate their bread, they would be reminded of the manna that came from heaven. And there was one other thing about the Feast of Tabernacles that was particular and must have been especially fascinating. Four 70-foot-tall candelabras were set up in the court of the women of the temple of Israel. These huge candelabras would be lit every night for eight nights until the great day of the feast, which came on the last Sunday. The youngest of the priests would have the responsibility of climbing those candelabras. I would have loved to watch that. I don't think I would have volunteered for that duty. But 70 feet in the air they would go, they would light the great candelabras, and the great candelabras would spill out their light into the courts of the temple, reflecting off of the beautiful white stones of the temple. More than that, reflecting off the gold of the parapets of the temple, and literally lighting up all of Jerusalem all night long to remind the children of Israel that God had sent a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud to lead them when they were in the wilderness wandering. This was a fabulous feast. And during this time of the feast, John chapter 7 tells us in verses 37 and 38, 
that in the last day, the great day of the feast, that would be the eighth day, Sunday, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Quickly, the people would have been reminded that the priest every day were going down to the pool of Siloam to commemorate how God had given water in the wilderness. Now Jesus is claiming to be living water. As you come to the end of John chapter 7, the 53rd verse says, every man went to his own house. So people are dispersing. The great day of the feast is over. But when you open to John chapter 8 and verse 2, it says, and early in the morning, he, that's Christ, came into the temple. The feast is over. The priests and the Levites are doing what the priests and the Levites do when the feast is over. They're repolishing the brass. They're taking down the candelabra for next year. They're picking up the pieces of the palm branches that have fallen. They're making sure that everything is spick and span. And as the priests are there in the temple, Jesus stands and he cries aloud, I am the light of the world. Having enjoyed the splendor of the light those eight nights, Jesus on this day following the feast announces that he's a light unlike any other. So we look in the passage this morning, I want you to notice with me that there's a scriptural claim being made, a scriptural claim being made by Jesus in the text to which we've turned. No one in the temple courts could have missed this. Those who were present, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the priests and the Levites, they all would have immediately linked what Jesus is saying from the Old Testament. They would have linked what Jesus is saying to God. Because in the Old Testament, light is linked to God. The psalmist said in Psalm 27 and verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. The psalmist said in Psalm 104 and verse 2, that God covers himself with light as with a garment. So when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, those priests and Levites, the religious people in the temple courts, would have immediately thought the Old Testament links light with God. And more than that, the Old Testament looked for light to come from God. Jesus is making a very scriptural claim. The book of Isaiah in particular speaks of this theme over and again. In Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Now the priest knew these texts well. Of all of the books that were favored by the priest, the book of Isaiah was one of the most wonderful. In Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, we read, Arise and shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall arise upon thee. His glory shall be seen upon thee, and the Gentiles shall come to thy light. Isaiah 60 and verse 19 says, The sun shall be no more thy light by day. Neither for brightness shall the moon give light unto thee, but the Lord shall be unto thee an everlasting light, and thy God thy glory. 
The sun shall no more go down, neither shall thy moon withdraw itself. For the Lord shall be thine everlasting light, and God shall be thy glory. Now the candelabras are being packed away. The splendor of the Feast of Tabernacles is being forgotten. And as the priests dutifully do their work around the temple courts, Jesus' voice thunders out, I am the light of the world. He's reaching back 750 years to the revelation of Isaiah in the Old Testament and bringing that prophecy forward as he self-identifies as the light of the world. And yes, there were those who already understood this. Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, he understood. In fact, when John the Baptist was born and Zacharias' tongue was loosed, this is what he said, The day spring of our God hath visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. When Simeon, the senior saint who loved to be in the temple and was there on that fateful day when baby Jesus came, and Simeon held baby Jesus in his hands, this is what he said, Mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Simeon and Zacharias recognized what Jesus wanted the priests and the Levites, the religious people in the courts of the temple to recognize that day, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy, that he is God who alone is the light, and he is the fulfillment of the prophecy that was given that God would come in a person who would be the eternal light of the world and of heaven. Archimedes lived in Syracuse, a city in Sicily. He lived around the third century BC. Archimedes, of course, was a fabulous mathematician. The king of Syracuse gave Archimedes a problem for him to solve. The king had commissioned a crown to be fashioned a crown of gold to be placed on the king's head, but the king wasn't so sure about the goldsmith. He thought, I think that this crown, though it weighs the right weight, may not be entirely gold. How can we find out if this crown is entirely gold without cutting into it or destroying it? So he gave the crown to Archimedes and he asked Archimedes to figure it out. If you know the story, Archimedes was sitting in his bathtub This is quite a picture. And as he sat in his bathtub, the water of the bathtub began to flow over. And as he saw the water flow outside of the bathtub, I don't think he was playing with any rubber duckies. He might have been playing with some lead duckies that day. Because he put various things in the water and he recognized the law of displacement. That the volume of the water running out of the tub was equal to the mass of what was placed into the water. He was so excited about discovering this scientific law of displacement that he jumped out of the water, and according to tradition, (laughs) he kind of streaked through Syracuse, if you know what I mean. He was running around yelling, Eureka! Eureka! I found it! I found it! Eureka! (laughs) And everybody was saying, well, whatever you found, put it back. (laughs) You know, there are times that the Christian, in reading God's Word, sees prophecies being fulfilled in the life of the Lord, 
And while we don't jump out of any bathtub, we ought to jump in the Spirit and we ought to say, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. I found Him. I found Him. This is the one that the prophets had prophesied that the light of the world would come. And now he's making that announcement that only he can fulfill this prophecy. He is the light of the world. Who is Jesus? He's the one who uniquely fulfills all of the prophecies of the Old Testament that point to him. He's the one who will uniquely fulfill all of the prophecies of the New Testament that point to his coming again. Who is Jesus? Well, in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 49 says he'd be born of the tribe of Judah. When we come to the prophecy that's found in Samuel, we discover that he would be born of the lineage of David. When we come to the prophecy of Micah in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, we're told he'd be born of the city of Bethlehem. When we come to the psalmist, the psalmist says in Psalm 22 that he would die on a cross, that they would pierce his hands and his feet. And yet the psalmist says in Psalm 69 that God would not allow his soul to see destruction, prophesying the resurrection of his body from the dead. Who is Jesus? He's the absolute perfect fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies. Our faith is not simply based on a sensational feeling. Our faith is based on the facts and the prophecies that only God can fulfill, and he fulfilled them uniquely in Jesus. The poet said, you know, I see my Lord in the book whenever I pause to look. He's the center, the theme of the Bible, the center and the heart of the book. He is the rose of Sharon. He is the lily fair. Whenever I read my Bible, the Lord of my Bible is there. Had you placed your faith in Christ, he's the unique light of the world. He is providing a scriptural claim. He is making in this passage a significant contrast. What do you mean? Well, as the sun is rising in the east over the Mount of Olives and beginning to shine in upon the temple courts once again, bringing its warmth, radiating its light, Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. He's making a contrast as the candelabras are being packed away for next year. He's reminding the people that the candelabras were temporary, but he is the light that's forever. And he makes a promise in John 8 and verse 12, He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. John 6, 7, and 8. In this selective biography of John, is setting forward a very significant, a very purposeful contrast. Moses led the children of Israel out of slavery, out of Egypt, into the promised land. And the contrast is this. Jesus has the power to lead you, to lead you out of the slave market of sin into the freedom of his righteousness. That's the contrast that's being presented. So in John chapter 6, if you go back there with me, John chapter 6, and the 22nd verse, John 6 and verse 22, listen to what Jesus said as he makes this contrast. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I send to you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and he that cometh to me will never hunger. What's the contrast? 
Moses fed them with manna in the wilderness, but Jesus is the bread of life. Israel left the slavery of Egypt, and God provided the bread of life for them in the wilderness, manna from heaven. Jesus is saying you can leave the slave market of sin, and you can enjoy Jesus Christ himself, the bread of heaven. When you come over to John chapter 7, the contrast continues in John 7 and verse 37. Jesus now at the Feast of Tabernacles stands forward in verse 37. He says, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and let him drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. As Israel left Egypt to go into the promised land, water was provided from a rock. And Jesus is now saying, when you leave the slave market of sin, you'll find that I will implant within you a river of water that always satisfies your spiritual needs. Now in John chapter 8, our text this morning, the 12th verse. Just as Moses led the children of Israel from Egypt into the promised land, and the great pillar of fire was there by night to lead the children of Israel in their wilderness wanderings. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. His promise? Moses led them from Egypt into the promised land. I can lead you from the slave market of sin into the promised land of heaven. John 6, 7, and 8 provide for us a beautiful contrast, helping us to understand that, listen, Jesus and Jesus only can provide everything that you need. He is the bread of life. He is the living water. He is the light of the world. Who is Jesus? He's the one who supplies all of our needs. Now and on into eternity. Are you hungry this morning? Spiritually hungry? Come to Jesus. Are you spiritually thirsty? Come to Jesus. Are you confused? He's the light of the world. Horatius Bonner meditated on John 6, 7, and 8. And he wrote these words, I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely give. The living water, thirsty one, stoop down and drink and live. I came to Jesus and I drank of that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched, my soul revived, and now I live in Him. I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am this dark world's light. Look unto me, and thy morn shall rise, and all thy day be bright. I looked to Jesus, and I found in him my star, my sun, and in that light of life I'll walk till traveling days are done. In this passage, we find a scriptural claim. We find a significant contrast. We also discover a spiritual concept is being revealed. And I want us to think about that for a few moments. Jesus is the light of the world. What a startling statement. What a magnificent metaphor. I want us to reflect quickly on six ways this truth of this metaphor can be enjoyed by us as we ponder it this morning. As we consider the greatness of Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Adrian Rogers reflected on the mystery of this metaphor and recommended five of the truths that I'm about to share. I've added one. But as we look at these truths this morning, when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, he's revealing a great spiritual concept because the purity of light points us to Jesus. The purity of light points us to Jesus. What do you mean, Pastor? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Do you realize that when light shines on a defiled object, 
the defiled object is displayed by the light, but light is not defiled by the object. Water can come from a bubbling spring in the ground, coming forth ever so pure, but as it flows down into the valley, it can pick up impurities and quickly be polluted. In fact, air can blow down from the most pristine of the mountains, and as it comes into the valleys, it can soon be polluted. But there's no such thing as light pollution. The purity of light reminds us of Jesus. Light is a worthy picture of the Lord. Jesus says in John chapter 8 and verse 23, speaking to those round about him in the temple courts, you are from beneath, I am from above. You're in this world, but I'm not of this world. You see, Jesus was and is and always will be ever so wonderfully pure. So pure that he can say in John chapter 8 and verse 46 to this same crowd, which of you convinceth me of sin? Literally, who among you can charge me with any singular sin? Now listen, Jesus lived and he moved among sinners. He was touched by them, but he was never polluted by them. He reached out and he touched a leper And he made the leper whole, saying, I will be thou clean. Jesus was never made anything less than whole by the touch that he gave to the leper. Over 140 years ago, Downs and Blunt discovered the antibacterial effects of sunlight. Today we talk about the UV rays and how the UV rays of sunlight can neutralize bacteria and even kill microorganisms. There are developers today, and some of you are aware of that, who are putting together water bottles with caps that transmit UV rays so that you can go to a dirty pond on your long hike and put dirty water into the bottle and screw on the cap, and the light itself will purify the water, making it safe for you to drink. Friend, just as light can purify Jesus Christ, the light of the world, has the wonderful power to purify us from all of our sin. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all of our sin. There's clarity in light, and the clarity of the light points to Jesus. You see, light can reveal what darkness conceals. Without light, we stumble and fall. But turn on the light, and we have clarity. And when Jesus comes, we have clarity. The world is living in darkness and in desperate need of clarity. In our dark world, people today wrestle with gender neutrality. The light of God's Word says God created them male and female. You flip on the light of God's Word and things become really clear. In the darkness, the world seeks to find opportunities for safe sexual expression. We flip on the light of the the Word of God and the light of the Word says that marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. The world round about us says Sue them. (laughs) It seems to be the solution for every problem. But the light of God's word says, forgive 
even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. There are a lot of people who don't know the clarity that Jesus brings into a life. A friend, if you know Jesus, praise the Lord indeed. He is the light and the light of the world. The constancy of light points to Jesus. The constancy of light points to Jesus. Those who are scientists in this room would be able to affirm that light travels at 186,682 miles per second. That's fast. The speed of light is the measurement by which all of the rest of the universe is measured. In fact, when Einstein was working on his theory of relativity, he put forward the thought that the constancy of light allows the theory of relativity to be discovered. The speed of light, 186,682 miles per second, that's the constancy that's discovered in the universe by which all else is measured. And even so today, we understand this, the constancy of the Lord's love. It's constant. It's never ending. It's never changing. The constancy of the Lord's grace. It's constant. His mercy is everlasting. And every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variableness, there is no shadow of turning. The vitality of the light reminds us of Jesus. Light and life are inextricably woven together. You can't have life without light. When God wanted to make a cosmos out of the chaos, He declared, let there be light. And light came. And when light came, warmth came and life, life began to multiply. The buds began to bloom. The flowers began to grow. Those who study the natural sciences talk of photosynthesis. Photo, the word for, for light, and synthesis, the word for to put together, to synthesize. Take away the sunlight, and the world becomes a cold, dark, dead place. But add the sunlight, and the world becomes warm, and life begins to swarm. And even so, if you want your life to be put together, Jesus Christ can provide a spiritual photosynthesis. He is the light of the world, and we walk in His light, and we have fellowship one with another. When Adam sinned, he was cast out of the garden. When the Lord cast Adam out, the Lord went out too. Life if you will, spiritual life left. As in Adam, all died. By the transgression of Adam, all of us became sinners. But the Bible reminds us that He turns on the light. And Jesus came to give you spiritual life and vitality. The victory of light points us to Jesus. The victory of light. I remember when our chase was little I trained him at turning on off the lights rather in the auditorium and there's some lights right behind this door. He was just a big enough to reach in there and turn those lights off and he came out one day in the dark and he said to me, Dad, it's Pookie back there. <laughs> I thought, you're exactly right, buddy. When the light is gone, it's Pookie. But when the light turns on, there's victory. 
When light is gone, darkness is victorious. But when light is on, darkness flees. And thank God, the prince of darkness, in fact, his name at his creation was Lucifer, son of the morning. But in his falling, he became Satan, the prince of darkness. And when Jesus comes in, the prince of darkness, isn't it wonderful? The prince of darkness flees. Jesus Christ is the one who gives victory. I read that every second the sun produces the same energy as about one trillion, one megaton, or a trillion, one megaton bombs. Every second the sun produces the same energy as a trillion, one megaton bombs. That means every second our sun produces enough energy for almost 500,000 years of the current energy needs of the earth. Every second. You know what I know? And you know it too if you know Jesus. Jesus is infinitely more powerful than the sun. He created the sun. Before he ascended up into heaven, he said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. He has the power to completely set you free from an addiction. He has the power to completely heal your family. He has the power to completely forgive you of your sins. There's victory in light and there's victory in Jesus. And finally, the glory of the light points us to Jesus. The glory of the light points us to Jesus. There are seven colors in the spectrum. Light is not just one color. Light is maintained within a seven-color spectrum. Truth be known, the things round about us today have no color at all. They only reflect the color of the light. You may be wearing a beautiful red dress. It has no color at all, but it looks beautiful today because of how it reflects the light that shines upon it. All light is made up of this interwoven spectrum. The bouquet of flowers on the platform today would not be enjoyed were it not for the light that's shining on it. Turn off the light and it becomes gray like everything else that's around this place. But when Christ comes into a life, just like light shining out of the darkness, when Christ comes in, there's a beauty that comes into that life that's never before been known. There are things that are seen that have never before been seen. Jesus does that. He's the light of the world. All of us have experienced what it means to be in a place where light can't be found. Way back in 1944, on the 19th of June, the Japanese fleet was discovered in the Pacific Ocean. And when it was discovered, Admiral Raymond Sprouts did something amazing. He commissioned 200 of his best flyers to fly from the decks of their aircraft carriers to take out the Japanese fleet. But he knew that the fleet was a long way off and he knew that night would come before the planes could get back. And so 200 pilots, 200 American of American's finest, went off of the carriers with their crews to find that Japanese fleet. Their mission was successful. Japanese aircraft carriers were put out, put out of commission. There were other Japanese destroyers that were themselves destroyed. But as the pilots turned, turned back to come back to the decks of the planes that they had left, they discovered that they were running low on fuel, and they discovered worse than that, that there was no light. Something unimaginable happened. As the pilots began to be dashed into the ocean ways, Admiral Mark Mitcher made a gutsy call. He ordered the lights 
of all the fleet, of all the American ships to be turned on in the middle of the night in the middle of the great Pacific Ocean. He knew the risk. Were there but one Japanese submarine in the area, they would be sitting ducks and targets to all. But Mitcher said, let there be light. And all the ships turned on their lights. And the planes began to find their decks. And by the end of that great foray, only 16 pilots and 33 crew members were, go were gone. All the rest were rescued. There may be someone in this room today who's looking for light, to find the light upon which to land. You see, we're all journeying somewhere, and Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He not only is the light of the world, but Revelation chapter 21 says, one day when we get to heaven, there'll be no need of the sun there. Why? Because Jesus Christ, the Lamb, is the Son of heaven. Dear friend, if you've never come to know the light of Jesus Christ, Today, we invite you to come to Him. And friend, if you've come to know Him who is your Savior, you can depend upon Him to give you the light for every day. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.